Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. Each of the seven churches written to in the Revelation were literal bodies of believers, but the letters do also carry overtones that reach even to our day, as they also describe the condition of the church through the ages. What lessons can we learn from this final church at Laodicea? Let's join Pastor Phil now to find out. As believers, someday God is going to write His name on us. Jesus is going to write His name on us. Those of you who are going to college or have been to college, what do you write your name on when you go to college? All the stuff that what? Belongs to you. You don't write your name on somebody else's stuff. Get in trouble that way. God writes His name on His property. What He has bought and paid for through His own blood, He writes His name on us to signify, you belong to me. Nobody else can take you. You belong to me. He has written, He will write His name upon us. And will write upon us the name of the new city, the city of Jerusalem. I got a t-shirt that has Chicago written across it. I don't technically live in Chicago, but Chicago is my city. When I go places and people say, where are you from? It's Chicago. Because they know Chicago, right? You write your name. I mean, you wear the city that you are connected to. We're going to live in New Jerusalem. That's going to be our city. So we're all going to be wearing these baseball shirts, I guess, with the name New Jerusalem. I don't know. (laughs) Get to heaven. Peter will be passing out T-shirts with uh, New Jerusalem written on it. And finally, verse 13, Jesus said, He wasn't here. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not just to Philadelphia. We all want to be Philadelphia, right? Like most Christians like to think that they're Philadelphia. And maybe they are more like Philadelphia than any of the other churches. I just think humility says that we look at ourselves honestly, look at all these churches and say, Lord, where am I at here? How much of these churches is in me? Am I being faithful? Or am I being a little watered down lately? Am I standing up for you in truth or am I being a compromiser because I want people to like me or I want their promotion? Have I fallen into idolatry in the sense that I've let something else uh, take that place of first love in my heart? You know, some new hobby or new toy or some new relationship. We have to examine ourselves to find out where we are with the Lord. We want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servants. We want to be a Philadelphia believer or a Philadelphia church. If we're going to be one, I know this, we're going to have to be faithful. We're going to have to stand up for the Lord, regardless of how unpopular it might be or whatever social suicide it brings into our lives. We have to not deny his name, which means I love you. You're a great Buddhist, or you're a great Hindu, or you're a great whatever, but that's not going to save you. You need Jesus. <gasps> you are so narrow-minded. <laughs> well, I get it from my Savior. He said, I'm the only way. I t- talk to Him. I'm just giving you what He says. But we need to speak the truth in love, and uh, not deny His name, and be faithful to His Word, and so on. Chapter 3, starting in verse 14. 
which says into the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot, or excuse me, were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with, uh, with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, Laodicea was the southeasternmost of the seven cities of Asia Minor that Jesus dictated these letters to. Forty miles down the road from Philadelphia. But its sister cities were Colossae, which was about ten miles to the east, and Heropolis, which was about six miles to the north. Now, the city had three claims to fame, and this is important because Jesus picks up on all of these and incorporates them into the letter here. Three claims to fame that this city had going for it. First of all, it was a great banking and financial center. In fact, it was one of the richest cities in the ancient world. Its citizens were so wealthy that in A.D. 61, when an earthquake totally destroyed the city, the people there in Laodicea were so rich that they told the Roman government, keep your money, we don't want it, and they rebuilt the city completely out of their own resources. Of course, that much money allowed them to have all kinds of other uh, opportunities for entertainment, and so they built for themselves a 30,000-seat amphitheater, the ruins of which still stand to this day. Secondly, it was a great center of clothing manufacture. From what I understand, the sheep that grazed around Laodicea were famous for their soft, violet black, glossy wool. Now, the merchants in Laodicea in the garment industry used this black, glossy wool, which is very sought after. Uh, they wove it into carpets, but primarily they used it to create an inexpensive, some would call it cheap, outer garment that they mass-produced. In fact, they were famous for a tunic called Trimeda. They were so proud of their garments that they didn't realize that in the eyes of God, they were naked. And number three, Laodicea was an important center of ancient medicine. Nearby there was the temple of the Phrygian god Menkaru, which had an important medical school associated with it. The school was most famous for producing an eye salve. And this eye salve was sent all over the, Greco or the Greco-Roman world. It was famous. Uh, it was used to restore sight, to heal uh, eye maladies. I mean, they were famous for it, and they were very proud of the fact that their city had been used to open the eyes of so many people, and yet they didn't realize that they themselves were blind. 
And so we're going to see all three industries come into play in this letter. The finance, the clothing, and the production of ISAB. Jesus uh, alludes to these in a spiritual way as he applies what's going on in their city physically. He applies it spiritually to the church, which we'll see as we go through this. What about the church of Laodicea? Well, we don't know really much about it. It's only mentioned a few times in the New Testament right here in Revelation 3 is the longest passage. It's mentioned in Colossians, I think, 4, verse 17, somewhere around there, Colossians 4. Uh, We don't know who founded the church in Laodicea. Again, uh, as with most of the six churches we've already studied, it was probably started as an outreach of Paul's ministry while he was in Ephesus. Remember, he spent three years in Ephesus. Well, Laodicea was 100 miles east of Ephesus, so it wasn't that far. And we don't know who found it. We know Paul didn't found it, by the way, because Paul was in Ephesus in Acts 19. And a few years later, he wrote to the church in Colossae and mentioned that he had not yet visited the church in Laodicea. So we know Paul didn't found the church. Well, who did? Well, some believe it could have been Epaphras who founded the church. He founded the church in Colossae, which wasn't too far away, like I said, what, 10 miles uh, to, the, uh, to the east or so. So he founded the church in Colossae. Some believe he also could have then founded the church in Laodicea as well. We really don't know. Uh, some believe that Archippus, and you can read about him in Philemon verse 2, and in Colossians 4 verse 17, that Archippus could have been the pastor there. There is an ancient document from the 4th century called the Apostolic Constitutions, which names Archippus as the Bishop of Laodicea. Uh, We're not sure if that's accurate, but I throw it out just for your consideration. That's about all we know about the church. As we look at these letters historically, remember now, Sardis spoke of that period of church history we call the Reformation. And from the Reformation, there flowed two streams or two branches of the church. First, the evangelical, born-again, true church, as represented by Philadelphia. And secondly, and probably much larger, the liberal apostate false church represented by Laodicea. So keep that in mind as we look at these historically and how the Holy Spirit is using these seven churches. Yes, they were real churches in Asia Minor. Yes, they had real problems that Jesus is addressing. But historically, allegorically, they do uh, encompass all of church age, interestingly, from Pentecost to the rapture. And so we've been looking at that too. And so we come to Laodicea now, which is, if we are interpreting this properly, Uh, is symbolic of the apostate last days church that we see so many places around the world, Uh, Christendom. We realize that all of Christendom does not belong to Christ. I mean, they, they claim the name of Christ, but out of the one billion Christians that are living on planet Earth, how many of them are really born again believers? How many of them are really part of the true church? We don't know. I mean, if it's more than 12, 13 percent, I'd be shocked. So a large majority of what's called Christendom is apostate, is liberal, is, you know, not part of the true church. Let's look at this. Verse 14. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. I want to stop there and point out something that you may not have noticed if you read this quickly. Something I think is significant. Uh, Notice every other letter 
begins with an address to the church. It's being addressed to. Uh, to the church of Ephesus, the first one begins. Then we see the next letter is addressed to the church in Smyrna, and then to the church in Pergamos, and then in Thyatira, and then in Sardis, and then, as we studied last time, the church in Philadelphia. But this letter is addressed not to the church in Laodicea, but to the church of the Laodiceans. And that is significant, I believe. Laodicea, the name Laodicea means the rule of the people, or the power of the people. And I believe it points toward a church government there in Laodicea that was based on democracy. A democracy, of course, is such where whatever the majority wants and votes for becomes law, becomes the rule. And you say, well, isn't that a good thing? Shouldn't a church be a democracy? No, a church is not a democracy. It's a theocracy and a monarchy. We know that Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, is the head of the church. And he doesn't get voted in every four years, by the way. The church of Jesus Christ, or those who claim to belong to the church of Jesus Christ, must, and I say must, bow the knee to his authority. And we must obey what his word commands. We don't get to make the rules. This comes as a shock to some people. We don't get to make the rules. I don't care if everyone else is doing it. We have to obey our Lord and Savior. He's in control. He is the head of his church. I am his servant. He is my Lord. I don't tell him what to do. He tells me what to do. And I have to bow to his authority. Even as a pastor, I'm only an under-shepherd. He's the head shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And Paul says, look, follow me as I follow Christ. If a pastor doesn't follow Christ, you better not follow him. Because Jesus Christ is the one that we look to as our supreme authority. Look, the Laodicean church is the liberal apostate church of our day. It's a church that's made up of many churches. I mean, sprinkled throughout the world. Churches that are really making up the rules as they go. Maybe you've seen this in the news. I mean, you know, every other week it seems like the church comes up with a new interpretation of the scriptures. All kinds of things are going on now that never were allowed before based on what the Bible said. I mean, there are churches that are ordaining homosexuals, promoting the theory of evolution, and even participating, believe it or not, in goddess worship, the worship of Sophia. The World Council of Churches would fit into this group. You know, churches that are pro-abortion, pro-homosexual, pro-pornography, churches that call uh, evil good and good evil. You know, it's frightening as I read some of these Gallup polls, maybe you've seen them. How many ministers don't believe in the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the resurrection? They don't believe the Bible is the word of God, that Jesus is the only way to heaven, or that hell is a real place. And yet, they call themselves Christians, these pastors. Their churches call themselves Christian churches. I don't know why they keep calling themselves Christian. They're they're really not Christian. The word Christian means follower of Christ. These churches are not following Jesus Christ. They're more anti-Christ than they are the true Christ. And so Jesus continues to the angel or the pastor of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. You know, the word Amen there comes as a transliteration out of the Hebrew. The Hebrew word Amen 
is just transliterated into the Greek and now the English, and we just, it's just amen. But the word in the Hebrew, the original meaning meant truth, affirmation, certainty. It refers to that which is firm, fixed, unchangeable. In Isaiah 16 verse, or excuse me, 65 verse 16, God calls himself the God of truth, right? But the Hebrew word is amen. He is the God of the amen. He is the God who is the God of all truth. We read about Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20, where Paul said, For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen. Now, the Jews would often shout, Amen, after the word of God was, was read. Or uh, a song was sung in temple that extolled God, the God of creation and all, they would often be moved to emotion and cry out at the end, Amen, which means truly, you know, that kind of thing. Jesus used the word quite a bit in the Gospels, but he put it at the beginning of statements. King James, if you've got a King James, you'll see in the Gospels that he would often say truly. Or King James is verily, or verily, verily. Other translations have Truly, or truly, truly, when he really wanted to emphasize something. Uh, It's the word amen. Amen, amen is what he is saying. What I'm about to say is absolutely true, and we wouldn't expect anything less from our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, here in Revelation 3, he actually calls himself amen. The only place in the New Testament where that word is used as a proper name, by the way. He calls himself amen. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Amen. He has the final word in His church. A democracy is where everyone gets together and they vote. And the majority, whatever they want and vote for, well, that becomes law. That becomes the rule for the whole group of people. We are not in a democracy. We are in a theocracy. May I say a benevolent dictatorship. Our God is not a malicious dictator, but he's in complete control. He totally controls his church. And God in the Old Testament gave to his people commandments. Uh, We think of the Ten Commandments. There weren't the Ten Suggestions or the Ten Opinions. They were the Ten Commandments. God speaks uh, very clearly. And when he speaks, he doesn't mince his words. He doesn't mumble. He says what he means and means what he says. He is in control. Jesus Christ is the amen. He has the last word. He's the Alpha and Omega. He is the one that's going to fulfill all the promises of God. And he lets the the Laodiceans know that right up front, because here was a church that no longer believed or they rejected the deity of Christ, the word of God, and were making up their own standards and morals as they went. In other words, it was a church that was ruled by the people. Not a church that was ruled by God. And whenever people rule, well, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Especially when you go to Jeremiah 17, verse 9, which says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The heart of man is deceitful deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So when you have man trying to govern himself, well, look around. I mean, look at our governments. I mean, whether it be the federal, state, local corruption everywhere, people using their authority not for the good of the people they're supposed to be serving, but to line their own pockets. We, we see it everywhere. And unfortunately, it creeps into the church and did in the Old Testament, by the way. 
Because in the Old Testament, we see plenty of examples of prophets and priests who were corrupted, who were in it for the money. And God indicts them in numerous places and says, there's coming a day when I'm going to give to my people shepherds that have my heart. After my own heart, they're going to feed my people with knowledge and understanding. The knowledge of me and the understanding of my word. Because all you priests and prophets have been corrupted by your greed and your immorality. And we see it today in the church as well. The church is not free from this kind of corruption. And yet Jesus Christ is still in control. And he is going to hold those accountable who lead uh, his church in a way that is not consistent with who he is or how he would lead them if he was on the earth right now. So this is a church that was messed up, a church where the people were in charge, not the Lord. They were making up things as they go. And uh, Jesus starts this letter by calling himself the Amen. And by the way, this is the only thing he draws out of the vision in chapter 1. Remember we said that pretty much every letter uh, incorporates into the introduction something of the vision of Christ that John saw in chapter 1. The only thing that Jesus took from that vision to incorporate into this letter was the word amen. You know why? This church didn't have their eyes on Jesus. So any allusion to the vision of Jesus that John saw in chapter 1 wouldn't have meant anything to them. Instead, Jesus simply calls himself the Amen, the one who is true. And that is important because Jesus, the great physician, is coming to this sick church like a doctor coming to a sick patient. And because he is the Amen, he is the truthful one, he is telling them like it is. You want a doctor to do that, right? If you go to a doctor, you have symptoms, you have problems, and, and you don't feel right, and you sense something is really wrong, you, you go to a doctor, and he examines you, or she examines you. You want them to be honest with you, don't you? Just give it to me straight, doc, you know? Our Lord is like that, the great physician. He doesn't beat around the bush. Some people think, wow, he's really direct here. He's, he's really kind of harsh. Hey, he's just being brutally honest. He's coming to this sick church with an accurate diagnosis of their spiritual condition. And starting in verse 18, he offers the cure. And basically the cure is repent. Repent. I mean, what doctor would say to a person with a severe and potentially life-threatening sickness, hey, you're fine. You just need to develop a healthier self-image. And yet that's exactly what churches are telling people today. Sin has been turned into a a mental disorder, a kind of a sickness of the mind. It's all in your mind kind of a thing today. Sin is almost completely gone by the wayside in many churches. They don't talk about it. They don't really take it seriously. They've kind of turned uh, sin into a kind of a psychological sickness, a mental disorder. And pastors and Christian psychologists are now, instead of preaching repentance which is how you handle sin, they're now preaching recovery, which is how you handle illness or sickness, mental disorders, psychological diseases. And so today we see in the church all kinds of 12-step programs. Maybe you've seen this. There are all kinds of 12-step programs in the church. And I just think that that is, it's missing the point. It is sidestepping the issue. I think that what a lot of Christians need is to get on their faces before God and spend some time seeking Him, confessing sins, you know, really repenting of what's going on so that He could touch 
and really work uh, healing in the sense of change in their lives. But I'll tell you this, Jesus Christ is the great physician, and he alone can heal the most serious disease known to mankind, which is sin. Why is it the most serious? Because it not only kills the body, but it will kill the soul in hell for eternity. Sin is a very serious thing. Isn't it interesting, then, the devil tries, has tried so hard today to get the church to downplay sin? In some circles, it's almost uh, unkind to suggest that a person uh, is having problems because of their sin. You say they need to repent. What are you, some old-time weirdo, you know, from the old days? I mean, no, they need to, they need to recover. They need to go into therapy. And God is saying, well, the only way to heal the problems of sin is to repent. And the only way to ultimately heal the greatest problem that sin brings, which is damnation, which is separation from God for eternity, means you have to come to Jesus who alone can cure you. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.